long-suffering can settle into resignation. Long seasons of suffering can settle into resignation. One of my first assignments as a young pastor was to go and visit a dear brother. He was a minister himself. He and his wife used to go out and do tandem ministry. They were the, a whole package deal. He was a preacher and a singer. She was a wonderful support helpmate. Only something tragic had happened. Early in their marriage, this Ivy League trained brilliant wife of his suffered the first of a series of strokes. Those strokes would continue and her health would deteriorate and what started as a unbelievable yet difficult trial stretched into a long, grueling grind of a life. That dear brother's days were spent waiting on his wife who could not feed herself, dress herself, or relieve herself without help. You might expect that a long season like that that went on by the time I met him for decades might settle into a sort of resignation. Uh, he even admitted to me that at times he wrestled with questions like, what is God doing? Is he not hearing my prayers that my wife would be healed? Uh, th this wasn't what I signed up for. This isn't the woman I married. Have you ever had a moment like that, maybe in your own life or in the life of someone you love? A long season of suffering that goes on and on for so long that it threatens even to settle into a form of resignation in your soul. Well, it's for seasons like that that we have this text in Luke. Uh, a story of an old, graying, godly couple a couple that had prayed for so long that maybe they'd even started to lose hope in their prayers. And yet a couple who God wasn't done with yet. We're going to look at this wonderful story, which is the first of a series of stories that Luke is going to tell, highlighting the introduction of Jesus into the world. Uh, Luke is going to use a bit of a literary device. He's going to put the origin story of Jesus alongside the origin story of another significant figure, John the Baptist. And he's going to switch back and forth between them several times before we get into the meat of Luke's gospel. Uh, this morning, the focus starts with John, a miracle baby and a God who isn't done speaking yet. And, and as we study it this morning, we are going to come to see that even when it seems like in our suffering that God is silent, that God is working to save his people. Even when it seems like God is silent in our suffering, that we could trust that God is working to save his people. Uh, we'll move through the text in four sections, which are the four different parts of this story. Uh, the first section is in verses five through seven, where you see, a, uh, a couple that is resigned to reproach, resigned to reproach. Uh, we're told this is happening in the days of Herod, king of Judea. Uh, that means this is uh, just AD 4 or so, um, early on where God's people are under the thumb of yet another oppressor. For 500 years or more, they have been under the thumb of somebody, whether that be the Babylonians, or the Persians, 
or the Egyptians or the Greeks. Uh, now the big bad bully on the block is Rome, the biggest and baddest of them all. Oh, sure, they've thrown them a few bones. They've given them a measure of autonomy. Uh, they've let them even build a bigger, grander temple than anyone ever seen. Herod's temple was standing, and it was a, a glittering jewel that people took pride in. And yet everyone knew when push came to shove, Rome was in charge. It was a dark day to be an Israelite. It was a discouraging day. And in the midst of this discouraging day, there is a discouraged, graying, godly couple. We're told their names are Zechariah and Elizabeth. Uh, they are a power couple of a priestly line. Uh, they're both from priestly stock, Zechariah from Abijah and uh, Elizabeth from the line of Aaron. Uh, that was an unusual and prestigious thing. People would have expected great things from this priestly couple. But there was one big problem. Elizabeth was barren. They lived back in a day when desiring a child was expected. And as hard as it is to desire a child and not have one today, back then that pain was even multiplied because of social stigma. Uh, there was the expectation that if you were favored by God, then that would mean that you would be fruitful in your womb. To not have a child therefore meant there was a cloud of suspicion that followed you around. Uh, a shame that couldn't be removed. That was the cloud under which this godly, graying couple had been living for oh so long. The days and weeks and months had turned into long years and decades. The flower of youth had long since wilted. And I can't help but think that maybe, just maybe, their suffering was settling into a little bit of resignation. Now, we are told that they are a godly couple, or, or that they are blameless in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. So we know that this lack of a child is not because of some hidden sin. Now, that doesn't mean they were sinless. It's just a way of saying they were exemplary. But the reality of the starting point of the story is it's a moment of sadness of a resigned couple living under the reproach of having no child to call their own. But it turns out that God is not done with this couple as he is not done with any of us in a season of suffering because God is about to do something incredible. And that's what our next scene shows us in 8 through 17. That is surprised by God speaking. Surprised by God speaking. Yeah, there's another layer to what made that season very de depressing as one of a member of God's people. And that is, it was what was called the era of the silence of the voice of the Lord. While they were under the thumb of all these different nations, God had ceased to speak through the prophets. Uh, the last prophet, Malachi, had preached his last sermon 400 years ago. All the promises God had given them of one day redeeming them, uh, one day bringing about his day of judgment and showing that he would keep his promises, all, all those promises were long, long given in the past. And many were beginning to wonder if they had misunderstood him, or maybe even worse, if God had forgotten about them altogether. 
What the next scene shows us, though, is that at long last, God is going to speak, and he does it in an unexpected way on Zechariah's big day. Uh, Some professions have a sort of pinnacle to them. Uh, One of those moments where there's a special moment of honor for someone. Uh, You can think of a professor that maybe is brought to sit on a distinguished chair or or someone that wins a a great prize for their profession. Uh, uh, My dad had the great honor of uh, his final flight as a pilot. Announced over the PA when it's a pilot's last uh, flight. And when they land, the, the tradition is that you're supposed to give them, an, uh, uh, the whole plane applauds them. And uh, they're given a, a special send-off as they walk off the plane. Uh, there are certain moments we understand where someone has worked hard to achieve something, or a moment where their, their career efforts are most properly recognized. Well, in the case of a priest back in those days, the pinnacle of their career would be the offering of incense in the temple. It was literally a once in a lifetime opportunity. It was something that you got to do only once because there were two times a day it was done and yet there were 18,000 priests. Uh, That means that even if you were lucky, you only got to do this once. Uh, The priest who was honored would be selected by lot casting, that is, by roll of a die, that is so God would be the one to choose him. Uh, He would be the one to go in and carry the incense, which represented God's prayers, to go along with the morning and evening sacrifices. And as the incense went up to God, the people knew that God was hearing the prayers of his people. Uh, Then the capstone of it all is that that same priest would come out of the temple and he would be able to deliver the benediction to the gathered throng. Well, in verse 8, we see that Zechariah had his number called. Here's his big day. It's finally here. In verse 9, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. I can almost feel his heart rate accelerating, his palms sweating. This moment, this career-defining moment, the pinnacle of being a priest, this is it. He goes into the temple with the incense. Uh, I would love to be able to ask him what he was thinking, probably trying to soak up every single detail, which would have made it all the more shocking for what his eyes see. Verse uh, uh, 11, And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. I guarantee you, whatever he was expecting to happen, this was not it. There is an angel. Now, we live in a day where people have sentimental views and, frankly, embarrassing thoughts about angels. We, we think of them as cute, cuddly babies with harps or uh, as, uh, as, as beings that would be warm and fun to be around, but... Uh, It's striking how many times in Scripture when someone sees an angel and their first reaction is, I'm about to die. Angels are spiritual beings. They are servants of God. They carry out his will in this world. Sometimes they do that in an unseen way. Sometimes they make themselves visible for their own purposes. They carry messages. 
Sometimes they fight battles for the Lord. Angels show up throughout Scripture, and very often when they're showing up a bunch, something major is about to happen. That's the case here. Zechariah is scared out of his mind in verse 12. He was troubled when he saw him and fell, and fear fell upon him. And that leads the angel into a phrase that he must be getting used to saying. Uh, I don't know if you ever had one of those jobs where you had to greet people in a certain way. One of my first jobs, I had to pick up the phone uh, very regularly and I had to answer it like this. Thank you for calling the Museum of Discovery and Science of Greater Fort Lauderdale. This is Tommy, how can I help you? I only had to say it once or twice, don't worry. Uh, certain jobs, you just have to get used to introducing yourself a certain way. Well, an angel is very used to introducing themselves by saying, don't be afraid. <laughs> get back up on the ground. You're not going to die. It's okay. He's, that's how he starts with Zechariah. He must be really tired of having to say that. Do not be afraid, because it turns out I'm here with good news. The good news, the first part of it is that your prayer has been heard. Well, what prayer? Well, maybe it's the prayer that he's offering on behalf of the people, symbolically by bringing the incense into the temple. Or maybe it's that multitude of prayers, the ones on tear-filled nights with him and his righteous wife as they have waited and pled with the Lord again and again for the blessing of a child. We're not told which it is, I think by inference we can say it's actually both. Because the message that the angel brings answers both of those troubled spots, both of those periods of suffering for them as a couple and for God's people as a whole. Uh, he tells him that he, they will have a son. Verse 14, uh, verse 13, your wife Elizabeth will bear a son and you shall call his name John, and you will have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Oh, what good news that must have been for Zechariah's ears to have heard, that they would finally, after long last, be given the blessing of a beautiful baby, a, a son. His name, John, means Yahweh is gracious, and gracious indeed he would be. There will be many that will rejoice at his birth their joy will be even compounded even more because he won't be just any ordinary baby that's the second thing the angel says your son will be a great prophet there's a bunch of ways that the angel tells him this we should already be thinking along these lines though uh, if you go through your bible if you see a promised child given to someone chances are they're going to be pretty important. Abraham and Sarah promised Isaac. Hannah is promised the prophet Samuel. Manoah is prom uh, promised great, strong judge Samson. A promised child is a pretty good invitation, indication that God is about to do something great. And they're told that John will be great before the Lord. In fact, Jesus will go on to say that he is the greatest of all people born among men because he will be God speaking to his people again. 400 years of silence 
And finally, another prophet will be sent to Israel. Uh, He heaps up descriptions to describe this reality that John will be this great prophet, the, the bridge from the Old Testament people of God into the new covenant that Jesus will bring. He tells us that he will be a Nazarite from his birth. He says in verse 15, he must not drink wine or strong drink. Now, it was common for people to, for a time to take a vow to not drink alcohol or to abstain from certain foods. Uh, to do so for a lifetime meant something special for John. Uh, notice that's matched with a special sort of relationship with the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Holy Spirit was given regularly to kings and judges for a period of time to accomplish God's will, but the Spirit came and went under the Old Covenant. But look here. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb, even as a preborn life. He will have a special experience of the Holy Spirit, one that we as believers in Jesus Christ will come to expect as the Spirit comes and dwells within us. And then most directly in verses 16 through 17, he tells them, that John is going to pick up, that God is going to pick up with John right where he left off with the prophecies that had ceased 400 years ago. Read with me verse 16 and 17. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. If you take your Bible and you just flip back to the book of Malachi, even without notes, you can do this. It's literally the last two verses of your Old Testament. It's really important to see where God had left off as he spoke through the prophets. The last word of the last prophet, 400 years before, this is what was said. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. Those were the words still ringing in everyone's ears for those 400 long years. Elijah is going to come. Fathers are going to turn back to their children, children back to their fathers. The day of the Lord will one day come. And what is Zechariah promised? Except that his son will come in the spirit and power of Elijah. That he will bring about that great revival that God had predicted, which must mean the day of the Lord is upon them. A new era is here. The season of suffering is ending, and it's going to come through his death dearly beloved son. Now, what he could not know at this point was how that would all fit together. God had a plan, and John the Baptist will grow to be an integral part of that. He will prepare the way for the one that will come after him, Jesus Christ himself. But John is not to be skipped over because God is again speaking to his people. And that means the season of suffering is coming to an end. Now at this point, it would be appropriate for us to pause and 
realize how important it is for us to understand the power of God's providence in the life of a believer. God, a God who is omniscient and omnipotent, a God who knows everything and is all powerful and is working all things together for his own purpose, if you serve that sort of God, then brothers, brothers and sisters, that means there's no such thing as a coincidence in your life. Do you think it was a coincidence that for all these long years, Elizabeth was barren? That her life went by with so many nights of sorrow and, and yet in her old graying years, long after the flower of youth was gone, then and only then would she conceive. Was that any accident? Or, or what about Zechariah's great moment, his pinnacle as a priest? Was it any accident that for all those years his number never came up and then finally it did on this day? If you believe that God is all-powerful, if you believe he is all-knowing, if you believe he is all-loving, then brothers and sisters, that means you need to be able to believe that no matter how hard the season of suffering you might be in, that he's working everything in your life for his good, for his glory, and for your good. It's been said that God is a great ar artist, and this world is his canvas. And that means, brothers and sisters, that your suffering's not pointless. Now, you may not know exactly why he allows some particular suffering. Maybe that's desiring a child and not having one. Uh, maybe it's like that brother I told you about, some disappointment with the way your marriage turned out. Maybe it's something else that hurts a lot for you even just to think about. But if you believe that God is gracious, that Yahweh has been gracious to you, then whatever season of suffering you're in, you can be confident that one day you'll see he, he sees you and he is working to save you. And all of this will be part of his great plan. Well, there's uh, an... Uh, excuse me, there's a, another important scene that comes in verses 18 through 23. And this has to do with how we respond to the word of God when it is brought to us. We see here disobedience and discipline. Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. That, that seems reasonable enough. By all earthly measures, there is no hope that there's going to be a baby born to this family. So he says, how am I going to know it? Is it going to be some sort of a sign? And to be sure, there are times when God does provide signs for people in the midst of their doubt. You can think of Gideon and his fleece, for example. But it's one thing to use a sign that God offers. It's a completely different thing to try to demand a sign of God. And Zechariah's request of a sign when you understand that seems more like doubt run amok in a man's heart, maybe even as that resignation has settled into it. Verse 19, we see that the response of the angel is rather stern. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I, I, I like to imagine that the angel stood up a little straighter as he said this. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you. In other words, when I speak, I speak on behalf of God. So you don't believe me? 
you don't believe God. Now, it's worth noting that Gabriel has had this role before. If you go back and study uh, Daniel, the last few chapters in it, you'll see him the same, uh, same sort of role and a very similar reaction from Daniel. But in this case, there is discipline attached to this doubt. He says, behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Now, the irony of this is thick. God has not spoken for 400 years. And the first guy that he speaks to doesn't believe him. And it's going to get even thicker because the one guy that he speaks to is going to be unable to tell anyone else. He's going to came in a sort of silence and he's going to leave in an entirely different one. And the way the rest of the story plays out is supposed to be comical, I think. Now, at this point, people are starting to wonder what's going on. The, the crowd gathered in, inside knew that the offering of incense shouldn't last all that long. And so the multitude starts murmuring, where, where is Zechariah? What happened? When he finally appears, it's obvious something has gone on. He, he's flailing his arms, and instead of speaking the good word, the benediction, he doesn't speak a word at all. Finally, they put two and two together. He saw some sort of vision. Something's happened, something divine. And at the end of the day, it's an awkward end to Zechariah's big day. He goes home stewing in his silence, a silence that will go on for at least nine months. Now, there is a word here for us about how we respond to the word. Each and every Sunday, we get up and we say together, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. After we read from the Bible, we believe that this is God's word to us. And that means when you study it on a Sunday in a church service or when you read it on your own or even when you drive by and you see it plastered on a billboard, when God's word is presented to you, you reject it at your own peril. Zechariah ended up with a, I'm sure, a rather frustrating form of discipline. We sing of, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. I, I bet he would have settled for just one. But realize for many of us that discipline may be something altogether different. We're told if you won't believe the truth, then you'll be made to believe a lie. God's word does not have an unlimited duration for you to respond in obedience and faith. Now, that doesn't mean not to acknowledge where doubts exist and work through them or not to help others through them, but it is a warning to our hearts that we should not let ourselves settle into doubt and even to prize it as a destination for a Christian to live in. No, our goal should be for our hearts to hear God speak and for us to say, yes, Lord, as you say, so will it be to trust God's word. There's one final scene, and it ends on a high note. The, the new setting that this story leaves us in is that the angel's words are beginning to be made, tr uh, come, to come true. And as a result, there is a release from reproach. Verses 24 through 25, we see the first time of several times we're going to see in Luke's gospel, highlighting the, 
commendable faith of a dear sister in the Lord. In this case, it's Elizabeth. Uh, we're told that she conceived just like the angel said he would, she would, and that she must have known that something was happening, whether Zechariah was able to tell her or not, we don't know, but for five months she kept herself hidden. She knew there was something special about this pregnancy. And, and then we have in verse 25 some of the purest words of faith in the entire Bible. She says, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Uh, those great words she said, th three wonderful insights to how a heart responds in faith when God speaks. The Lord has done for me. She knows this pregnancy is not her own doing. This is the grace of God at work in her. In the days when he looked on me, God was not, even when he was silent, it wasn't that he hadn't seen her in her pain. No, he saw every bit of it, and now his mercy is made known to her. He has looked and seen and acted. And third, that he has taken away my reproach. She has been released from her prison of shame. Uh, the very thing that had been the source of so much suffering now will be a source of joy. That's the way faith works its way through seasons, even long seasons of suffering. Now, brothers and sisters, I don't know what particular suffering you might be going through, but you should be able to say these three things about your faith. You should be able to say, what an amazing thing it is, what the Lord has done for me. Because if you're a Christian, you believe that he sent his son Jesus, the one who John prepared the way for. He sent him to die on your behalf as a substitute for your sins. Uh, he did that because he looked upon you in the midst of the misery of your sins, and he had compassion. His love moved him to make this great and costly sacrifice. And in so doing, he released you from that prison of suffering. Jesus paid every sing for every single one of your sins. And he did so to the point where there is now no condemnation if you are in Christ. And then he rose from the grave so that you could have full joy yourself, knowing that you are dearly beloved by God. He's not forgotten about you. He's not forgotten his promises to you. He has seen you and he has acted. And one day you will see with eyes of faith that he has been working to save ultimately. As this story comes to an end, we see a great turning point in the history of how God reveals himself as a God who saves. John the Baptist, the great prophet who would resume the prophetic words from God, preparing a people for the coming one, Jesus Christ. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, uh, there's nothing more important for you to understand that, than what you need most is the, to, to know the one who John was preparing people's hearts for, to know Jesus himself. Uh, as great as it is for God to speak, as important as it is for you to hear his word and to respond, the most important thing for any of us 
It's to know that his son Jesus is the only savior that will ever be sent. The only one that can make us right before God under the guilt of our sins. You, know, you need to respond to that word, the, the good news of the gospel, by repenting of your sins, uh, turning to God through faith in Jesus. If you do, you will find the great joy that Elizabeth and all her relatives experience. And you'll find even more than that. You'll find the joy of someone that has been released from the chains of your sins and that knows that you will live forever with God through Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, when God seems like he's silent, would you remember that he sees you and that he is working to save his people? That dear brother I told you about, he lived in that long season of suffering for decades. By the time I had met him, it had been multiple decades. They sent the young pastors to meet with him for a reason. Because even though he had many opportunities to settle into resignation about his suffering, that dear brother had an incredible faith. He sat there and he told me, Young pastor, do you know about the sovereignty of God? I said, uh, you know, I, I do know about the sovereignty of God, but why don't you tell me about it? He said, you know, one of the most beautiful things in the Bible is that it tells us that God works every single thing for the praise of his glorious grace. You know, one of the things that has kept me from becoming bitter toward God and abandoning the faith as I've watched my dear wife suffer, it's because I believe that. I believe that God is using this to glorify himself and somehow mysteriously for my good. And then he went through and gave me a little Bible study on all the things in scripture that tell us that God is sovereign and in control and working for our good. My faith was greatly encouraged sitting there with that suffering brother. I hope, brothers and sisters, that when you, when it's your turn, when your number comes up to enter a season of long suffering, that you too will remember that God sees you and that he is working to save his people, whether it's obvious yet or not in your particular circumstances. And praise be to God for that reality. Because if not for it, what hope would there be in this life? But with that truth in your heart, brothers and sisters, you can live through anything. Let's pray. Oh, our Lord Jesus, thank you for the great promises that you have made to us, the, the ones that were even brought to pass in your coming into this world. Thank you for the great joy of that godly graying couple who had their disappointment turned to joy. And thank you that we also can know in the silence that you have not forgotten us, that you see us, and that one day it'll be obvious that you have saved us now and forever. Oh, Lord Jesus, now would you allow us to sing with hearts made glad. We pray these things in your mighty name. Amen.